You are now listening to the July 16th broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have 12 Apostles, Sermon, and Equipping the Saint. First, let's begin with 12 Apostles. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. This is Brian Winston with the 12 Apostles of Jesus. We're going to learn about Apostle Andrew. According to John 1.44, Andrew is the brother of Peter. He was a fisher who lived with his brother in Capernaum. Unlike his brother Peter, who was hot-blooded, Andrew was a sensitive person who looked after his neighbors and who was able to notice things that other people missed. Perhaps, It was because of this attribute, him noticing things that others missed, that Andrew was the first disciple who followed Jesus. Today, we will take a look at the life of Andrew, Jesus' disciple, and learn spiritual lessons that the Lord teaches us. At first, Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. Andrew watched as John stood and Jesus walked up. As John looked upon Jesus, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. As Andrew heard John say those words, he immediately followed Jesus. Let's read from John chapter 1, verse 38. And Jesus turned and saw them following, and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, Where are you staying? Beloved listeners, what would your answer be If Jesus asks you, what do you seek? What do you want? Or what is your wish? Lord, please heal me and restore my health. Lord, please lead my children to you. Lord, please watch over my business to not fail. Lord, please allow my stock to go up. If we think about what Andrew could have wished, His wish could have been his fishing business with Peter to bloom. Or, since his brother Peter's mother-in-law was very sick, he could have wished for the good health of his family. He could have wished for getting married if he was a bachelor. But when Jesus asked him, What do you seek? Andrew's answer was, Rabbi, where are you staying? It is somewhat of a strange answer. Andrew answered with a question. Where are you staying? To Jesus' question, what is your wish? But this was his specific answer and a question at the same time. Andrew wanted to know where Jesus was staying. He wanted to know the place Jesus was staying so he can meet him continually, have a fellowship, and listen to his teaching. Andrew had a passion to build a deeper relationship with Jesus, got to know him more, and wanted to listen to his words right by his side. So his answer to Jesus' question was, Where are you staying? Andrew's wish was wanting to listen to more of Jesus' teaching. Just as Andrew's wish was wanting to listen to Jesus' teaching right by his side, we also must love his words and his teachings. Charles Spurgeon, who was known as the Prince of Preachers, said the following famous saying, A Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. 
There are a lot of people who listen to and read the Bible from their smartphones. This quote can be applied today to the Bible app. There are many apps we use often, such as Google Maps, Amazon, YouTube, or email. I hope we use the Bible app daily and as often as we use those other apps. I hope each day brings you closer to Jesus by opening the Bible, reading it, and even listening to it. There is a popular saying in Korean, small but sure happiness. The small but sure happiness for Christians is reading the Bible every day and getting to know Jesus' plans for us so we can live each and every day with faith through his moving of our hearts and the peace he gives us. That is truly small but sure happiness in the way to the spiritual master. Just as Andrew answered by asking, Lord, where are you staying? When Jesus asked, what do you wish? Andrew wanted to listen to more of Jesus' teaching. I hope we will be able to confess that our wishes, Lord, fill our spirit with Jesus Christ's words and renew us so we can live our lives as you want us to live. When Andrew met Jesus, he immediately went to his brother Peter and told him about Jesus. Let's read John chapter 1, verses 40 to the first part of 42. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Messiah means the anointed one, and translated to Greek is the Christ. Andrew went to his brother Peter and confessed. I finally met Jesus, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. Jesus Christ became a phrase and is easily mistaken for a full name. But describing that Jesus is the Christ is a very important confession. Christ means the Anointed One, and only priests, kings, and prophets in the Old Testament were anointed with oil. Priests in the Old Testament gave sacrifice to God to forgive people's sins. King in Hebrew was Melech, and it means protector or ruler. Kings protected and ruled over their people. Prophets taught God's words to people. So when we confess that Jesus is the Christ, it has the following spiritual implications. Jesus is my priest. He is the high priest who became the sacrifice willingly on the cross and offered himself to cleanse all my sins. Jesus is my king. He is the king who protects me and leads me through my life. Jesus is my prophet. He is the prophet who teaches me with the word of truth always and gives me strength. Proclaiming that Jesus Christ, Jesus is my Lord and King, during the Roman Empire, when the only king was the emperor, was a dangerous but brave proclamation. Andrew confessed that Jesus is the Christ, and the Christians in the early churches also confessed that Jesus is the Christ and carried out their work. Here is what is said in Acts chapter 5, verse 42. And every day, in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. In Acts chapter 18, verse 5 says, and when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, 
Paul devoted himself fully to the Word, testifying to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. Like this, early churches believed and witnessed that Jesus is the Christ. Early churches called Andrew Protocletos. It means the first disciple. Because we know how it turned out, we say that what an honor it must have been to have become Jesus' first disciple. But from Andrew's point of view, it must not have been easy to give up everything and decide to become a disciple of a 30-year-old young man from Nazareth. The reason Andrew was able to make such a decision and act on it was because he believed that Jesus was the Christ. Beloved listeners, who is Jesus to us? Is he one of the four great thinkers? Or one of the many gods in different religions? Or do you believe Jesus is my priest who resolves the problems of my sins? Jesus is my king who leads and protects me? Jesus is my prophet who teaches me. Jesus is the Christ. I hope we will be able to proclaim each and every moment that Jesus is my Christ, Jesus Christ. And I am a Christian who believes and follows Jesus. This concludes today's episode of 12 Apostles of Jesus. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Phoenix in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is persevering through opposition. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Mark. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 13. I do want to, we're going to study chapter 14, but we kind of have to take a run into it to get prepared to step out into chapter 14. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 13 to begin with verse 44. The apostle Paul and Barnabas had been preaching in a city by the name of Pisidian Antioch, and there had been a tremendous work of God. I mean, one Sabbath, the people were, so many people were converted. People were following Paul and Barnabas after the service. They wanted to do more. The next week, even more people came. Look at verse 44. When it says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But, you know, whenever God does something, there's always opposition. Look at verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with what? jealousy, and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. The him is not Paul, it's Jesus that Paul was talking about. They were trying to contradict what Paul was saying about the Messiah. And so they started even blaspheming Jesus. Reviling is a translation of the word blaspheming, speaking terrible things against Jesus. So here's the response Verse 46, and Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, to you Jews. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we are turning to who? The Gentiles. So they said, okay, here in the synagogue, you guys don't want to hear the gospel anymore. All right, we're turning to the Gentiles. Well, how did the Gentiles think, respond to all of this? Look at verse 48. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Even with this persecution, guys, they weren't sad about it. They were seeing this is the work of God. And yes, there's resistance, but there's life change as well, right? Um, not all the Jews were against them. Don't get that idea. Many of the Jews believed, but there was this pocket, probably of the leaders and influential Jews in the city that were stirring up trouble against Paul. They just hated him, hated the message of Jesus. So Paul and Barnabas leave Antioch, and they move about... 20 miles away, and they go to a city called Iconium. Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Now, at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Well, wait a minute. I thought Paul said, we're finished with this synagogue stuff. We're going to the Gentiles. Well, he said that, but it was just for that situation. 
In Antioch, he's saying, look, no more of that. But when he comes to Iconium, they follow their usual method of synagogue evangelism. So they go into the synagogue. He's given an opportunity to speak. And this says he spoke in such a way that the people believed. You know, there, you can take the word of God and use it in such a way that people don't want to hear you, right? Or you can take the word of God and you can share it in such a way that people are drawn into it. But verse 2, here we got a problem again. The unbelieving Jews stirred up Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So we have the same thing happening. Now, something that is mentioned here that I wanted to point out is that it says in verse 4 that uh, some of the people sided with the Jews, some with the apostles. Paul and Barnabas are called apostles. Paul's called an apostle for the first time here. How many apostles are there? Twelve. You're right. Twelve. So how can Paul be called an apostle? Strictly speaking, there are just 12 apostles, and they're the disciples of Jesus, you know, Peter, James, John, Matthew, etc. Those are the 12. They were hand-selected by Jesus. They lived with him. They listened to him. They saw him alive from the dead. So they are the apostles. The Bible says that the foundation of the church is laid upon the foundation of the apostles. So how can Paul be called an apostle? Well, I think there are several ways that the, the word apostle can be used. The word apostello simply means to be sent. It means one who is sent. So the idea is a messenger. Now, the first apostle, the greatest apostle, the book of Hebrews tells us, is Jesus. In the book of Hebrews, Jesus is called the apostle. So who is the greatest sent one? Jesus. He's sent by God to us. He is the apostle from God. Then Jesus chose 12 apostles, and they are the guys that the church is built on. But then we see Paul is called an apostle. Now, this is what I believe. I believe that Paul would have been a 13th apostle if that could have happened. But there aren't going to be 13. There's only going to be 12. So what does Jesus do? He says, well, I call Paul. He called Paul in a special way. He appeared to Paul. He taught Paul. And Paul himself then claims throughout the New Testament to be an apostle on the same level as the 12 apostles. And the 12 apostles never complained. They never called him on the carpet and said, what are you doing? He says he is an apostle on the same level, though he's not one of the 12, those founding fathers, so to speak. And then there's another way that the word apostle can be used, and that can be people who are sent out to share the gospel. Barnabas would have been an apostle that way. Barnabas was a missionary that was sent out. So when we send out missionary, they are, they're little apostles going out there. 
sharing, witnessing, taking the message of Jesus to the world. Verse 5 says, When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. So they found out that there was going to be an attempt on their lives, and so they fled. Fugo is the word in Greek. I just like the sound of it. Fugo, to flee. Now, were Paul and Barnabas cowards for running away? Somebody's asked that question. I don't think so. I think they were smart. I don't think it was time to end the book of Acts with Paul's martyrdom. I think God still had work for him to do. They knew that, and so they left. And you know what? It was Jesus' will for them to leave. How do I know that? Because of what Jesus said to his disciples. Listen to what he says in Matthew 10. He says, when they persecute you in one town, flee, fugo, to the next. Jesus says, if they persecute you in one town, then you need to flee to the next. See, sometimes God will deliver us by taking care of the problem, maybe by taking care of our enemies. Other times, God says, the way I'm going to take care of you is to have you run away from that situation. Case in point, remember baby Jesus, the angel appeared to Joseph, and he says, Joseph, take the child and his mother and flee, Fugo, to Egypt. Now think about it. Here is, here is Jesus. We'd have the angels. We'd have the shepherds. We had wise men with gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We had all of this, and now run for your life. See, sometimes it's the will of God that you run. Even happened with Jesus and his parents. So they ran to Egypt, and Jesus was kept safe. So, Paul, you're not they're not cowards, they're smart. So Paul and Barnabas go about 20 miles now to a city named Lystra. And they are not going to do any synagogue evangelism here because apparently there were not enough Jews to even, there wasn't a synagogue, there wasn't even enough Jews in Lystra to uh, have a synagogue. But uh, in Lystra, I want you to keep this in mind, three very important people lived. Keep this in mind as we go through the rest of this chapter. In Lystra, a woman named Lois lived with her daughter Eunice and with her grandson Timothy. So this is where Timothy lived. Now, Timothy is going to become Paul's spiritual son, so to speak. Timothy will, will, Paul will become Timothy's hero. Paul will instruct Timothy and put huge responsibilities on Timothy in the future. And it's most likely that it's during this time that Timothy and his family get saved. So will you keep that in mind right here? Keep that all in mind. 
So instead of there being any kind of Jewish synagogue or anything, there is outside the city this huge temple to Zeus and a big statue to the god Hermes. Verse 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking And Paul looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what had Paul done, they lifted up their voices in Lyconian, saying, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Let me just say something about this miracle. This is incredible. Remember, Luke, the doctor, is writing about this stuff. So Luke has got to realize that here's a man who has not been able to walk since he was born. So you can imagine the kinds of muscles he did not have in his calves and thighs and all, okay? Probably just nearly skin and bones. When Paul speaks the words, get up, He gets up, it says he sprung up, and on newly created muscles began praising God. The miracle made a huge impact on these citizens. It says in verse 11 again, when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus. And Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So what's going on here? Here's the backstory. A poet named Ovid told a story or a myth about the gods, about two gods. Step back a minute. The Greeks and the Romans believed that the gods in heaven would often come down to earth in human form, and they would live among people, and generally they'd cause a whole lot of trouble and go back up to heaven. And they could be pretty nasty here on earth. So this is the story. The story, and this had been told for generations at Lystra, was that two gods, Zeus and Hermes, had come down to Lystra one time, and they were looking for a place to stay. And we're told that they look, they knocked at a thousand doors, and all the doors were barred. Nobody would let them in. No one except one old couple This elderly couple took them in, and the elderly couple offered a sacrifice to them because they recognized who they were. Well, enraged at the city, Zeus and Hermes annihilated the city, everyone except this old couple, whom after they died, they turned into two great trees. The end. So... 
They had this background. Our city was destroyed. It was annihilated one time because we didn't recognize Zeus and Hermes when they came. So now, do you see how everything's set up? Do you see this? Um, Barnabas is a tall dude, must be Zeus. Paul is a shorter guy, but the guy who talks a lot, he's got to be Hermes. And so they begin, they begin chanting in Lyconian. The gods have come down to us. The gods are here. So we're not going to make the same mistake we did last time. So priest of Zeus goes out. He brings a sacrifice, and they're bringing it toward Paul and Barnabas. And this is kind of the funny part. Paul and Barnabas don't know what's going on for a while. They see the people getting all excited. They see the people shouting. And they think, oh, they're just all excited about what God has done. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. They see the people going out, and they see, why don't they understand what's going on? Because it says they're speaking in Lyconian. Paul and Barnabas don't know how to speak that language. Whatever they said had to be translated for them. So they realize, as the sacrificial animal was coming toward them, that the, the, the sacrifices, the oxen, that they are, they think we're gods. They're gonna, maybe somebody clued them in. They think you're gods. They're gonna sacrifice to you. Well, at that point, Paul and Barnabas, devout Jews, followers of the one true and only living God, they realize that's blasphemy. And so they did what, what Jews would do when they're encountering something like this. They rip their clothes. They ripped their clothes, and Paul was starting them, verse 4, stopping them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We're just men of like nature with you. We're just people. We're just like you. Paul preaches a sermon. Look at his sermon. He says, men, why are you doing these things? In verse 15, we're also men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news, gospel, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the sea, the earth, and the sea, and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. What? How is that different to how the pagans thought? Well, for one thing, the pagans had to have a God for every one of those things. They had a God for the rain. They had a God for a fruitfulness. They had a God who made heaven. Then they had a God who made earth, and then a one who made sea. And Paul's coming to say, no, no, I'm presenting to you a God you haven't known, but he is the great God who created everything and is God of everything. So that's the big message here. So Even with these words, verse 18, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews, it says, verse 19, came from Antioch and Iconium. And having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Before we move any farther, the Jews came from where, guys? Antioch and Iconium. You see that in verse 19? Antioch is 150 miles away. 
Iconium's 20 miles away. So, knowing me, I had to, I, I started down a rabbit trail. I'm going to share it with you guys, okay? I found out that a typical day's journey during this time in the Roman Empire, you could, you could go 20 miles a day, all right? So you could go 20 miles a day. This would mean that it would take seven and a half days to get to Lystra to persecute Paul. Lystra to persecute Paul. Actually, because they were Jews, there had to be a Sabbath in there. So it took eight and a half days of travel for these Jews to get to Lystra to persecute Paul. Now, that's devotion, isn't it? That's commitment. It was actually a 17-day round trip. Think about the expense. Think about the money you didn't make because you weren't at work. Think about the dangers they encountered. It was dangerous to travel in those days. Guys, you get mugged, you get robbed, you get killed. They were so intent on persecuting Paul, they went eight and a half days to stir up the people against Paul. So what do they say? I was thinking about it, you guys. I can't, I can't imagine what they would have said about Paul. He heals people. He teaches the Bible. Wives have been changed. I don't know. What would you say negative about Paul? I can't imagine what they came up with. But some lies they began to share stirred up the people and the people, the mob, they stirred up the people so much that a mob formed and the mob took Paul and they stoned him and they left him for dead and they threw his body out of the city expecting um, no burial, just expecting the the wild animals or the dogs to eat his body. So, but disciples had gathered around his body, and they they were looking. I'm sure they were praying, and something amazing happened. Look at what happened, verse twenty. But when the disciples gathered about him, he what rose up. That's the word for resurrection in Greek. You know, it's used of resurrection over and over in the New Testament. Some people believe Paul died and was actually resurrected from the dead. That was the miracle here. Other people believe that he was just severely wounded and, and God raised him up uh, even through all his pain and suffering. Where am I on that? To not kill Paul, you'd have to be a pretty bad stoner, wouldn't you? I would want to make sure I did the job right. So did he die, and then he was raised to life? The word for resurrection is that word, or did he die and was raised up, which is the word can be translated to get up as well. I don't know. You decide. Yeah, this is one of those things that you can decide. I do lean one way. I won't tell you which way it is, but I do lean one way. 
so he rose up and then he decided, let's get out of town. I've had it here. I, I don't want to get stoned again. What does it say? He rose up and what? Entered the city. <laughs> You're not going to do this to me. I'll get up. And here this man goes back and he enters the city. And then on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium. In other words, we're just going to go right back and visit that church that we started. They went back to Iconium to visit the church they started there in Antioch to visit that church. And what did they do? It says they strengthened the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith. And saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And they appointed elders in every church. And with prayer and fasting, Paul and Barnabas committed these new believers to be elders in the churches. And uh, they left and uh, went, sailed back to Antioch, where the journey started. So they went a full circle. Something I want to just think about for a second. It says, they strengthened the souls of disciples, saying to them, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Somebody was telling me that some preachers... They're popular and talking about how, you know, yeah, you know, they have a real, a real, real positive message. That's what people need to hear. They need to hear positive messages. And it was positive verses kind of talking verse by verse with the Bible. I didn't say anything, but I was thinking, well, positive messages, what do they do to get you through being a Christian in Ukraine right now? What do the four ways to be a successful person do in a situation like that? Would your book sell in Ukraine right now? You know what I'm saying? You hear? I think we want to follow the whole counsel of God. Don't get me wrong. The Bible is very positive and upbeat, but it's honest about this world, isn't it? This world isn't heaven. A lot of times we want to think it is, and we complain when we go through tough times or we maybe worry or question God when we're going through difficulties. And we think, why is this happening? Well, I'll tell you one reason is we're not in heaven yet. This world is not heaven even with the church and God's people on earth and the transforming power of Jesus, this still is not heaven. It's not even close. And so bad things are going to happen. People die. People suffer. People are sick. Divorces happen. Families split up. Wars go on. That's reality of this world. But let me tell you, Christian, let me tell you, brother and sister, this world is the closest to hell that you will ever get. Do you understand that? 
You'll never get any closer than you are right now. And one, and it seems like it at times, you know, hell just splashes on us a little more than other times. And it feels like acid hits us. This world is the closest to hell you're, you're going to get. So get through this world. Get through this world. He strengthened the, the disciples by saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Hey, the reality is this life can be tough. Some people seem to sail through it, don't they? Don't talk about them, right? Some people seem nothing happens to them. They're believers. They're just, their lives are cool. But then others, it's like oh, one thing after another, after another. Well, the Bible said it through many tribulations. Be encouraged, okay? Be encouraged. The apostle Paul would be here right now and he'd say, Calvary? And here he would kind of be bruised and beaten up, right? I'm sure he still had blackened blue marks and, and maybe broken bones and and he looked worse than he did before. And yet here is this man saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Whatever your tribulation is right now, your difficulty, your affliction right now, I want you to offer it to the Lord and offer it to him in such a way that you're saying, Lord, I understand that I'm walking through a world that is not friendly to me. And so I'm going to ask you for your strength to walk through this world with this affliction right now. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we have this affliction. We have these troubles. Some of us in them right now. And we want to, we want to offer them to you and say, we understand that we're in enemy territory, that we can get shot, we can suffer, we can hurt, but we are going to be in the kingdom. We are going to be there. You will never let go of us. That is our complete assurance. Thank you, Jesus, that you took hell for us so that the way would be parted, that we could enter into the gates of heaven. We long for that time. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Praise God for His Word.
Programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts. You can easily play this week's or past week's program, or even download them on your device in just a few minutes. Search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now. The following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt. And I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. An overseer is a shepherd, a pastor. They are men in whom the Holy Spirit has created a desire, we'll see, to look out for, protect, and feed, and lead the flock, the unadulterated Word of God, feed them that... They watch out for the spiritual condition of the flock. They are spiritual leaders who lead by example, completely yielded to the head of the church, Jesus Christ. That's what you want to look for in leadership, what Scripture says an elder should be. Should an elder be the CEO type that can manage a business? Well, certainly you can be a CEO and be an elder, but if you bring your worldly ideas to the prospect of his spiritual redeemed church, we've got problems. They are godly men who submit to the head, Jesus Christ. Elders are God's stewards of his church. 
those who are focused on Christ and his word, those who feed and protect the flock, those who meet the characteristics of Christ's likeness, as we're going to see next week, mature men who will speak the truth in love, who will warn you of threats and false teaching, who will confront you in your sin for the purpose of restoration, who will answer your questions and concerns, pointing you to the all-sufficiency of Christ as revealed in the Word of God. That's what godly leaders look like from Scripture, and that's the standard that you should have. And if we fall short of that standard, you need to come to us, and you need to graciously confront us because we are sinning. God stewards of His church, watching out for your souls, it's really important It's really important because you are really important because Christ died for you. Now, unfortunately, the church is so misguided and biblically illiterate. Now, I know there are new believers who don't know Scripture. They are growing, and that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people who should by now be teachers. They should know the Word of God. Time sufficient has passed. Hebrews chapter 5. If you've been a believer more than a year, you should know a lot about the Word of God and a lot about Christ. If you've been a believer for more than a year, the Apostle Paul shared tremendous doctrine within the first year to the Thessalonians. Time sufficient has passed. But unfortunately, the church is so misguided and biblically illiterate these days that I need to raise the question, actually, which I shouldn't have to raise. It's obvious. But who do elders shepherd? I shouldn't even have to raise this question to this body or anybody ever anywhere. Who do elders shepherd? But who do elders shepherd? Obviously, they shepherd the flock. First Peter, again, I told you, put your finger there in First Peter. Let's turn back there to First Peter chapter 5. Now, there's a lot of principles here in First Peter chapter 5, and we could spend the whole morning on it, actually, but we're going to pull out a few of them, and it's a wonderful, wonderful passage. Let's take a look, First Peter 5, chapter 1. And be aware of who the elders are shepherding here. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you. Now, I believe we can get some profound insight from this very simple verse concerning all sorts of things, including who elders are to shepherd. First of all, what can we observe from this term in chapter 1? Notice it is the flock of God. It's God's flock. It's not our flock. It's God's flock, not our flock. It's God's flock, the flock which he purchased with his own blood, Acts 20. First Peter chapter 1, if you turn back a little bit, he reveals the preciousness of the price paid for the flock. First Peter 1.17 And if you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each man's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time stay upon earth, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver and gold from your feudal way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last days for the sake of you. It's God's flock. He bought it with the blood of Christ. The church is God's church. He purchased it. It's not my church. Now, I'm identified with the church. I'm part of the church, but it's not 
my church, it's God's church, it's God's flock. Now, I know some people don't recognize what they're saying at times, but I'm always coil back in my heart and mind when I hear this, when they say, that's Pastor Jim's church, or that's Greg's church. It's not his church, it's not my church, it's God's church. I understand some people are trying to show respect, and I appreciate that, but we need to realize when the church becomes the pastor's or elder's church, it's in big trouble. It's God's flock. It's God's church. Peter is commanding these elders to shepherd the precious group of sheep who are purchased with the blood of Christ. Now, what else can we observe from this simple statement in 1 Peter 5.1? Notice they are to shepherd the flock of God among you. 1 Peter 5.1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you. He exhorts the elders among you to shepherd the flock among them. Wait a second, what do you mean by that? These elders are not to shepherd sheep in St. Louis. They're not to shepherd sheep in the Congo. They're to shepherd the sheep among them in Asia Minor. Shepherd the flock among you. It's really important. Elders are to shepherd the flock among them, not somewhere else. The duty of shepherding cannot happen over the computer. It can't happen over a video screen. It happens when we are together among one another. Notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I read this earlier, leaders diligently labor among them. Appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. They are there in your midst among you giving you instruction. Elders shepherd the flock among them. I can't shepherd anyone other than those who are in my midst. Some bishop in an office in Tennessee cannot shepherd the flock in California. Elders shepherd their local flocks. And folks, this militates against some higher leadership in some denominational place somewhere else that is eldering over other people somewhere else. Shepherd the flock among you. And there's those who might listen to the radio broadcast we have. This principle can be seen in reverse. People who listen to the radio cannot be shepherded by the radio. Certainly you can grow from the teaching of the Word of God. You can be equipped, but you cannot be shepherded via via the radio. You need to be in a godly body with godly oversight, and just hearing the Word on the radio is no substitute for that. Shepherd the flock of God among you. What else can we observe from this really packed statement here? I believe this is so incredibly ignored by shepherds and wicked shepherds. Shepherd the flock of God among you. It's God's flock you shepherd, not the world. We've got churches all over shepherding the world. Got programs for non-believers. Got anything and everything for those who are seeking. That's not who elders are to shepherd. They don't shepherd the world. They shepherd the flock of God. So many pastors are catering to the world and attempting to shepherd non-believers in absolute contradiction to Scripture. And if you see a pastor shepherding the world, he is disobeying this command. He is not a godly overseer. He is not obeying the command directly to the elders. Godly shepherds, godly leadership shares the gospel with non-believers. They do not shepherd them because they're not his sheep. You can't shepherd someone who is not his sheep. 
The only way you can shepherd someone who's not a sheep is by filling their needs, and that's what churches are doing these days to the detriment of those who are truly his sheep. Shepherd the church of God, those redeemed by the blood of Christ. So then it's God's flock. It's the flock among them, not somewhere else. It's a flock of believers in Christ, not unbelievers. Folks, there's a lot of truth in this little statement. This is why elders in Scripture are called, Acts 20.17, the elders of the church. The elders of the church. James 5.14, who is that person who is sin-sick to call in James 5.14? He is to call the elders of the church. They are the elders of the body of Christ, the called-out ones, called out of darkness into light. Who do elders shepherd? It's a dumb question, right? They shepherd God's flock among them. They shepherd the church of God. Folks, if I start shepherding the world, you're in big trouble because we are being disobedient. If we start catering this church to meet the needs of the world, we are in disobedience. And you need to confront us or get out. Now, some of you might wonder, are there any chief or senior elders or lesser elders? Do we have a senior elder, Greg, or do we have a chief elder, this, that? Is that, or what about the senior pastor? We hear that term in many churches, right? Senior pastor, senior shepherd, basically, is what that means. Folks, I want to tell you right now, there's nowhere in scripture in any way, shape, and form that reveals the principle of a senior pastor or senior shepherd. It's nowhere in scripture. I know some people are given that as a term of respect, and I understand that, but ultimately, the term Senior pastors made up by men and found nowhere in Scripture. Elders are on the same level. They all rule. Some were credit preaching and teaching also. But they all rule over the flock. They all shepherd the flock. Listen to what Peter says again, 1 Peter 5.1. Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder. Peter doesn't say, I exhort you elders as the first pope. I exhort you elders as the senior elder, senior pastor, he says, as your fellow elder. Humility. We are shepherding this body on an equal level of submitting ourselves to Christ for his glory and for your good. Fellow elders. Peter was humble. He was a fellow elder. He wasn't the senior shepherd. Folks, Americans are so obsessed with titles. And this worldliness has crept into the church big time. I'm not saying everybody that has the title senior pastor is not humble. I'm saying ultimately we need to be careful. We need to be careful. It's not in Scripture. And from Peter's example where I want to get my instruction and teaching, he says, fellow elder. Now this naturally leads, I believe, to the question, how many elders should there be? Should there be one elder in every church? A lot of churches take that from this passage here in Titus, point elders in every city. Or should there be one elder in every church, and that's the senior pastor or that, and then there's a deacon board or whatever it might be? How many elders are there to be? Indeed, in our passage in Titus 1, we see Titus is commanded to point elders, plural. Acts 17, Paul called the elders of the church. Plural. First Peter 5, 1, we see Peter, as I just mentioned, addressing the elders, plural, among you. There's a couple elders there among you. It's not just one elder. Call the elder from this city and that city and that city and bring them over. It's the ones among you. You're a body. You're together. Again, as I mentioned in James chapter 5, 
He says, is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Is he saying, okay, send a runner to every elder in each city and bring those all over here to pray? Or is he saying, call for the elders in the church? I think that's what he's saying. There's a group of elders there. Call for them. Come and pray. Not only is elder form of government the norm, but a plurality is the norm. And just a side note, there's so many churches that ignore the bulk of the scripture. They may quote Acts 15 as we see the council in Jerusalem for the reason why the church should be shepherding the flock. But if you read that closely, it is the elders and apostles ultimately that call it together. They take word and they, they respond to the congregation's input, which I would be terribly unwise not to do. But ultimately, when all is said and done in Acts 15, it says the elders and apostles, they wrote the letter. They made the decision ultimately. A plurality of eldership is the way God has ordained the serving and leading of his precious flock. Now, one thing I need to note also, elders in Scripture are men. Everywhere the term is placed, it is in the masculine gender. There's no other place. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he talks about elders' qualifications, and he gives just men there, and then he talks about deacons, as we'll talk about, and he talks about men and women. Everywhere in Scripture we see that elders are to be men. And if you don't understand this, we see in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over men. Elders exercise spiritual authority over the flock. He says, but to remain quiet, for it was Adam who was created first, then Eve. And he talks about Eve being deceived. There is the potential for women to be deceived. Eve was deceived in the garden. She didn't rebel. The fall falls on Adam. He Rebelled, But in the way that God has made man and woman, ultimately, God does not allow women to exercise authority in the church for the protection of the church. And that doesn't demean women in any way, shape, or form. So in a nutshell, elders, overseers, shepherds are a plurality of men in whom the Holy Spirit has created a desire or appointed to look out for, to protect, to lead and feed the flock, the unadulterated word of God, to watch out for the spiritual condition of the flock. They are spiritual leaders to lead by example, yielding completely to the head of the church, who is Christ. They shepherd the church of God, not the world. They shepherd the body among them, not somewhere else. They are God's stewards of his church. They are focused on his word. They protect and feed the flock. They meet the characteristics as we will see in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3. Mature men who will speak the truth in love, warn you about false teaching, confront you in your sin to restore you, answer your questions and concerns, pointing you to the sufficiency of Christ in the word alone. That's my responsibility. And there are some elders, 1 Timothy 5:17, who also work hard at preaching and teaching. So that's a brief overview of eldership. We're going to take a look at it more in depth next week and then share the responsibilities of the congregation to leadership. But some of you are saying, okay, I got the elder thing, but what about deacons? I went to a Baptist church and our leaders were deacons. It's the deacon board. And so what about deacons? I'll briefly go through this quickly. We don't have time enough to go through the issue ultimately, but I'm going to go through it briefly. The word deacon means simply servant. That's if you were to take the Greek word deacon and know its exact meaning. If you said the word deacon to a Greek speaker of this day, they would hear the word servant. That's what they would hear.
We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.